Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everyone. This is the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. And today, uh, we're taking a little turn here, and we've uh, spent the last couple of uh, episodes uh, talking to people who've you know been out there for a while and you know have uh, gotten a lot of experience and um, now I wanted to turn to uh, my friend Lane Kawaka who's actually a young guy and um, has uh, had a lot of success in the couple years he's been doing things he's actually an engineer based in Seattle and um, he has been focusing on real estate so I wanted to Get him on to, as an example of someone who is and has made that step from being a you know well-paid W-2 wage earner to trying to uh, create multiple streams of income. So welcome, Lane. Hey, Buck. Good morning. How are you? Good. I should also mention that Lane has a uh, his own podcast called SimplePassiveCashflow.com. Um, it's uh, well, that's a website, and it's simple passive cash flow, which we can download on iTunes, which I think is a, a neat little show, especially uh, uh, the uh, introduction song Lane. That's really impressive. Well, you, you're actually singing a song about Lane, but <laughs> anyway, so Lane, let's get down to business. Tell me your story, man. You're from Hawaii, so how did you, you know, go from there to get to the mainland? And you know, and, and you know, you're an engineer. How, tell me your story. Yeah, so I um, grew up in Hawaii, moved to uh, Seattle for college, went to the University of Washington, where I got a BS in industrial engineering. Uh, eventually, I'd get a master's in civil engineering there, too. But pretty linear path up to that point. I went to work at a at an employer who um, used my engineering degree to manage other employees in construction. I uh, had to travel a lot with this job. It was actually 100% travel, so I would leave the house on Sunday and I wouldn't get back till Friday evening. So all this time on the road, 
you know, kind of got old after a while. The good thing was that I got compensated for this. And about that time, it was the uh, 2000, and I graduated in 2007, and then the 2008, 2009 economy crash. And it was a pretty good job to have. You know, I didn't, I didn't get laid off or anything like that. So I was able to save a bunch of money. And I bought my first rental in about 2009. Well, let's go back to, let's go back to before your actual purchase. Tell me, you know, were you thinking uh, during this time when you were studying engineering and obviously uh, uh, you're a smart guy, industrial engineering and at, at UW is, is uh, uh, you know, pretty significant uh, academic stuff. Tell me, you know, were you thinking during this period I need to do something else, or how how that go? You know, I I was thinking about this the other day, and you know, why did I go into engineering? I don't I don't know. I was programmed at a young age to get a degree that used science and math. I I do believe. I I don't know why I chose that. I knew that engineering jobs get paid well, and maybe that was the really only thing I was going for. But I I really wasn't. There was nothing really that wow I, I you know I wanted to be a doctor to save lives or you know be a psychologist to help people. It, it, there was really nothing pushing me. There was really you know I was just kind of following a path, like I said. And how about that moment when you said, "Well, gosh, maybe I should buy a house and you know go on my own and and um, well not on my own entirely, but 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 take that step and invest in real estate." How did that? Where did you get that from? Well, I was always a kind of a miser or a cheapskate, as you said, with, with money after graduating. And I was making this money, but, you know, not really going to Starbucks, just saving it. And, you know, I was still following that program. You know, you save your money to buy a primary residence because that they say that's the best investment. And I believe that there was kind of an escalator. Once you get by that first home, you kind of ride that escalator of, of wealth building, which I finally found later that was wasn't quite true right and did you have a what was an aha moment or anything where you said okay now i'm gonna buy a house you know i just i just was saving money and i really didn't know what what to do with it i mean i did i i did a roth ira i think when i was like 13 years old you know so i was kind of into stocks you know i did i went through a couple year phase where i you know was trying all the the swing trades on on the stock market that got to be a little stressful you know i was mostly doing mutual funds at the time and you know people always just told me you need to buy real estate that's all i knew about it i was pretty unsophisticated at that time so you're unsophisticated you say gosh i i think i need to buy some real estate because maybe that'll help me you know to uh create another stream of income um, how did you go about that? Because that sounds like for somebody who's unsophisticated and who's never done it before, that sounds like kind of a big deal, right? Right. I mean, I just I just saved the down payment, the 20%, 25% is what people said to do. So that's what I did. I uh, went to a house that I liked. Uh, somebody was sitting in there, the guy selling the house. And I said, hey, can you help me find a house? And of course, you know, these real estate agents, you know, they're willing to help. They definitely get paid on the back end. And we were off and running, and that was right there in Seattle. That's correct. So, so you obviously, you know, so there's somebody sitting in the house. Uh, you want to buy a house now? How do how do you go? You know, how do you go figure out? Um, you know, I can rent this house for so much money, et cetera. 
I mean, obviously you could have bought a house and then realized you're not going to get enough rent to pay it off. So that's not a great investment, right? So, so how did you, how did you, you know, sort of break through that question? Probably that anybody really is going to have who's doing this for the first time. All right. I, I, I got lucky, quite frankly. I bought it at the right time. It was the down part of the market in 2009. I bought it for 300, about $360,000. At that time, it would have rented for about 2200 so the, I think the mortgage payment with twenty percent down would have been about sixteen, seventeen hundred. So there was, you know, there was some spread within the rents and and what the mortgage was. But you know, I didn't know anything about the fifty percent rule, anything about expenses. Tell us about the fifty percent rule. What is that? When you're underwriting your deals, they say to put fifty percent of your rents to expenses such as your your monthly maintenance, your property management, your capital expenditures, and just things will happen. So for example, that twenty two hundred dollars of rent that that property would would have bought brought in, if you don't know anything about the property and you're just doing a quick back of the envelope calculation, they say cut that in half. And that's probably going to be your take home at the end of the day. So twenty two hundred divided by two That'd be eleven hundred, and just in that little, you know, that little example, my mortgage would would have been sixteen hundred. That property would have cash flow negative, right. just with that un, that conservative underwriting. So you had you got lucky on your first one, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad. I mean, it's good in that, you know, it encouraged you to keep going. And a lot of times, um, you know, people will have an experience um, where they buy a house and things don't go well and they're like I'm losing money and instead of trying it again they just they'll just quit right so so you got lucky in that regard and then um, obviously you started seeing some cash flow and you thought well this this is interesting right so so what what'd you do next well then I started reading all these this rich dad poor dad book and I was like wow (laughs) that's right well Robert Kiyosaki has inspired a lot of people I mean Obviously, I'm one of them, and you're one of them as well. And so, what what was it that inspired you about it? What was there a specific idea that you took away from that 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 kind of uh, um, carried you to the rest of your journey? He just really showed that you know there's really two kinds of people out there. There's the the folks that are kind of living the employee mindset, and then there's these other people who have kind of seen the matrix. And, you know, living with all this, the goal is trying to build up your passive income so you can leave the rat race. Right. And you then went on to uh, buy a bunch of different houses. And how many houses do you have now? I have 11 now. 11. And you talk on your show a lot about this concept of buying turnkey Homes, and I know you don't want to be pigeonholed as the the turnkey guy, but tell us what exactly that is. How does that work? I guess if I were to continue in my story, you know, I bought another property in Seattle, but then around 2012, all the prices went up, and because I was more sophisticated at that time, I quickly realized that a lot of these the cash flow just wasn't there. You know, I'd be buying properties that are under the one percent rent to value ratio. And what that is, that's a quick, quick and dirty uh, indicator of your ability to cash flow. So, if you were to buy a property for a hundred thousand dollars, one percent of that is one thousand dollars. 
and that's what you should be getting in rent. So if you're under one percent, it's uh, you're probably not getting cash flow. If it's above one percent, then yeah, you should probably take a look at it as a potential purchase. So what I started to realize in Seattle, you know, with all this this Microsoft money and the tech money, you know, these people were just you know wanting to put their money somewhere. So they they were just bidding up all these properties. Not, there was no cash flow, and then I just kind of saw all this out of state markets that you're finding these one percent deals or even one and a half percent deals all over the place. And my goal was to replace my income, and to do that, you need cash flow. Now Seattle has great appreciation potential, similar to California, but that was not my goal. My goal was not for appreciation, which I kind of call gambling. It was again for cash flow. So are you there yet? Are you have you replaced your income? The problem with these turnkey rentals, uh, other than the fact that the the margins of cash flow are getting narrower and narrower every day, is that you've got to buy a whole bunch of these things to uh, to hit your number. You probably need about I probably for my number, my number is about five to eight thousand dollars is when I need to be able to quit my job to be able to live passively off my my rental property income. And to do that, I would need about 20 to 30 properties. Really? 20 to 30 properties just to hit five to $8,000, huh? That's right. So sort of had another aha moment, I can tell. So what, what are you, are you going to refocus on something? What, what's your plan now? Because if, you know, that's, that's a lot of houses to go one at a time, right? That's right. I mean, even with, you know, 11, it, it is pretty easy. I mean, I managed a manager... And, but unfortunately, you know, I'll run into a, uh, eviction once a quarter and a couple of things will break every month. But you just imagine, you know, if I, if I have 30 of these homes now, I triple the, those kinds of instances. And now it's becoming quite the passive job. <laughs> right, right. You know, that's the problem with, um, that I've always had and I've never really gone the route of owning. Uh, individual homes, although you know, I don't think it's a bad idea, particularly if you don't have the the money to get into apartment buildings, etc. But you know, one of the challenges you have there in single-family homes is, you know, uh, when you look at an apartment building, one of the things you talk about is vacancy levels, right? You don't want a lot of vacancy. Um, the problem, so you you might look at a like I have a twenty-unit building right now that. Uh, okay, well, a couple people moved out. Well, okay, that's fine. I mean, I still have 90% uh, occupied, right? In houses, you either have 100% occupied or 100% vacant. Uh, and so that is a little bit of a challenge there in that arena. Um, so are you thinking apartment buildings? Sure am. I, mean, I guess this, it's a funny, I, I've gone through a, quite a transition this year. You know, earlier this year, I went to a workshop where there were about 500 investors and they were all for these turnkey rentals, you know, picking up five, you know, most of them had about five, about the average. And then I I meet up with you at the syndication seminar with all these higher level investors and everybody's, you know, teasing their little single family homes, thinking that it, it definitely was not the way to go and, and departments and much larger commercial deals it should they're just more scalable more sophisticated and so that's the path that i'm heading down now you know i think um you hit on a good point Lee, and this is something that 
you know, I, I talk about on this show sometimes is that, you know, the idea of smaller and, you know, simpler is actually pretty deceptive. Uh, in my experience, whether that be, um, you know, buying real estate or running businesses or potentially looking at acquiring businesses, the bigger the business, the bigger the property, the easier it is. And the reason for that is that uh, per, is that usually what it comes down to is that you have a lot more variables in those properties, but you have scale so that you can manage them with a manager. Um, and then the other thing is when you're actually trying to acquire something, it's really hard to fudge numbers, right? And um, so if you have like a, let's just say, for example, you're, you're buying a, you know, a duplex or a three unit even, which is, you know, it's fine, do it. You know, it's, it's still a great investment. But um, sometimes it's a little bit harder to understand, um, you know, just based off of those three units, whether something was, uh, when you look at those financials, whether, you know, it was a streak of good luck uh, that the, the owner had and kept these, places, um, kept these places full for the last couple of years, um, or if, you know, if that's just where it's at in, in that building. Um, I actually bought a building. It's the nightmare scenario that, that you hear about one time. It was actually pretty, you know, it was, deep, it was not huge. But it was like 12, 13 units. Uh, and it, as it turned out, it was small enough so that this, this guy who sold it to me was a property manager in the area. And this is sort of a D-class area. So, I mean, that I wouldn't recommend that either. But he was totally cooking the books. Right, so he had other people in other buildings that he was moving in, and um, you know, and he was um, he was essentially using money for other uh, building rent and putting it into this building to show the financials better on this because he wanted to get rid of it, and I I couldn't prove it, um, so I couldn't take him to court or anything, but at the end of the day, uh, it was pretty clear that that's what was going on. And I ended up selling that building for a substantial loss. Now, if if you're dealing with a 100-unit building, okay, it's really hard to do that. It's really, really hard to do that because you can't fake your tenants, 100 units. You can't do that. You're filing, you know, you're filing a, uh, your taxes, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to move people around when you have 100 units. You have property managers that you actually have to have as full-time people there who are employees of the building. So that makes it a lot harder to fudge numbers. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and I'll also add the reason that to go to these larger properties is not only your property management, but all the vendors that come through your property. You, you're not getting, you know, side... side uh, the guy who does the plumbing and then the handyman on the side, but you get this, you know, this very reputable company who signs like a twenty, fifty thousand dollar contract with you to go out and do hundred fifty of your units. I mean, you just the level of sophistication and how these guys just don't screw around with this stuff. Yeah, the other thing is, and I think one of the most important parts of, uh, you know, the commercial grade uh, uh, real estate versus uh, residential is how you value that property. So. If you buy a home and you're trying to get a loan on it or you're trying to refinance, nobody cares about how much rent you're getting for that home. 
They look at it like any other house in the neighborhood and they appraise it for that amount, okay? So that's a tricky thing, right? Um, you don't have any control over the value of your property. Whereas in an apartment building, now you're talking about a commercial, anything really, it's just not a huge apartment building, but anything over, over four units, so five units above, the way that the appraisal works is not by looking at every other, you know, little place in town and say, well, that one went for that, that one went for that. It's based on how much rent that that property is generating. And then something called a capitalization rate, which is essentially for a given area, for a given rent, you know, how much is a typical return on investment? So it becomes a much more mathematical game, right? And you don't, there's no, there's no like, there's not as much speculation. Obviously, there's always a, a tiny bit of speculation there no matter what. But that is inherently less risky because if you raise rents, your property value goes up. That's how it works. You're forcing equity versus hoping for equity. Right. And, and the example I always like to think of is, you know, say you bought an apartment complex and there's five parking spaces outside and you want to start renting those out as reserve parking spaces for 20 bucks a month. So $20 times five parking spaces, you, now you just created $100 of revenue a month. Now that's, let's just say that's $1,000 a year that, of extra revenue, and then you divide that by the cap rate, let's say it's a 10 cap rate, I mean, you just created, what about $10,000 of equity right there? If I did, did the math right? Well, you're the engineer, so I'm not going to check it. Up, check up on your Div- math. Divide it by the the point one zero, and that's how much equity you, you've created, just by doing something simple like renting out five parking spaces for twenty bucks. Right. So, I mean, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think the the lesson, one of the lessons that I've learned in that regard is, you know, try to push the limits on how big. Just because you've never you've never been in real estate before doesn't mean you have to start with a house i didn't start with a house i bought my first uh my first building was you know i don't remember it was over 10 units but um uh, you know and, and frankly you know for me right now i would i wouldn't touch anything less than 20 units because of what i've what i've learned along the way but so let's go back to your story a little bit um i mean you're a young guy i mean you're only uh what how many years out of college you're you're not even 30 yet right uh, I'm 30 now. Oh, okay. You are 30. You're an old man now. Oh, man now. Uh, um, what advice do you have for people who, you know, I mean, you represent, you know, people who listen to this program, which are you know, highly educated W-2 wage earners. Okay, not everybody's, you know, coming out of the gate thinking that they, um, you know, that they can invest in real estate, that they can do things um, other than their own job and, you know, throw money into a 401k. Um, can they do this? And, you know, and obviously they can, but I'd like it from your perspective, obviously, as somebody who's still in that transition, give us some words of wisdom. So I I run a meetup with uh, other professionals similar to myself. And I think the biggest mistake I see is a lot of these people, they don't differentiate between investing in active or passive roles. Most times the, the shiny object or the the person tugging at their coattail is that wholesaler or rehabber that needs private money. So a lot of these professionals such as myself kind of get into the flip, you know, partnering on flipping deals. And that's a job. And I definitely don't recommend that for people who have a high, much higher billable rate than I do. 
I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. literally like the turnkey model or passively investing in syndications. Right, right. So you don't even, I mean, you don't even have to do this stuff yourself necessarily, but there are ways to get involved. We call, when, when you're talking about syndications, just so there's some clarity on that, it's a, basically it's a private offering. They'll have somebody, um, you know, like me or Lane or whoever who's got some experience in real estate uh, and we'll say, okay, well, this is a building that is, you know, seven or eight million dollar building. Well, I'm not going to pay for it myself and it's not safe for any one individual to go into this. So let's, you know, let's recruit money and go into this uh, together. And then you, you know, as a limited partner um, with this, so Lane and I, in this case, would be maybe would be a sponsor and we would do sort of the legwork behind it, the due diligence, put all the property management in place, get a plan for the building. And then there's the limited partners or people who invest in the um in that uh, offering it's uh, a private offering and then they just collect passive income so that is another way to do this and certainly we'll we'll have plenty of people um on the show who are doing various offerings and and that sort of thing but yeah so so that's another option why aren't you in the stock market well the risk reward i mean i in the stock market it's only about eight to ten percent if you're in one of those mutual funds. And then I, I just see, I see it as a sort of a little Ponzi scheme. I mean, I don't know how how the uh, stocks are evaluated. It's it's also, you know, there's all the numbers on their balance sheet, which who knows what that is. But it's also dictated by the street's expectations. And I don't know what that is. And the way I, I always explain is that it's a two-variable equation. You just can't solve those kinds of things. Yeah, um, I was being sort of tongue in cheek. I mean, on this show, I'm never, never a big fan of the stock market. And if it, it were indeed eight to ten percent per year, like you just said, I would be in there for sure. But it is not. In fact, if you go back to, um, you know, the the stock market has been uh, sideways for uh, about two years now. There's, re- you know, there are record highs right now, but they're just a little bit above where they were two years ago. And those are really just the blue chips too. On top of that, so you know, there's, um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this in, in one of my recent podcasts. Listening to Robert Kiyosaki's podcast on, uh, he was interviewing um, Harry S. Dent, you know, the economist, and was talking about how you know these valuations and decreases in 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 um, earnings and profitability. Really, the projection right now is that if you get in the stock market right now and you're not currently in it that you'll probably be negative in the next eight years. So so, um, so that's a far cry from eight to 10%. But I think what you're, uh, I, I think the value of what you're doing and what you know a lot of real estate investors are doing is that there is a pre- generally a very predictable uh, income. Of course, you, you know, nothing's, nothing's 100%, right? But at least you understand that you own something, you own a business, and any apartment building, any house that you're collecting rent for is a business. It it has an activity, which is that people need to live there. They pay a price for that. There are expenses, and whatever comes, uh, whatever comes up, uh, you know, from that, whatever's left is yours to keep. And that's a very very simple simple concept. Whereas in the stock market, we're talking about you know crazy. Um, you know, crazy valuations. Um, you know, you have crazy valuations for companies that are making no money. Um, in a, you know, an episode where we had Dr. Eric Tate on, he was talking about 
how in business school, uh, this was during the whole Enron crisis, that Enron's, uh, Enron's stock was uh, sky high. It was being recommended by just about every wealth advisor. And in his business class, they went through the financials and realized that they hadn't made a profit in three years. Now, if you have a house or if you have, I should say, an apartment building that hasn't made a profit in three years, no one's going to no one's going to buy that from you for, you know, for a crazy amount of money. And that's what people are doing in the stock market. They just don't realize it. So what we're doing and what we're advocating is for is to invest and try to understand what you're investing in. And when you invest in real things, that's what you can do. That's right. And it, and it just comes down to a numbers I and mean, rate of return. With these uh, kind of turnkey rentals, I mean, I typically get 25 to 35% a year. I mean, it's just night and day, 25, 35%, or do you want 8 to 10%? They're not easy, but like my website, Simple Passive Cash Flow, it's simple. Are you paying cash for those or are you... Uh... Are you uh, uh, are you leveraging? I, I leverage. I, I'm an yeah. advocate for leverage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, good, um, Lane. It was great talking to you. I mean, I think you know the point of uh, this show. Obviously, you're a young guy and you are on your journey. You're a you know you're hardworking professional, smart guy, and um, you've seen the light, and you're trying to. Uh, you know, you're trying to create multiple streams of income and you're showing it that it can indeed be done. And I predict, because you're 30 years old, right? And you're doing this at just the right time. You've got, you know, you got no kids. You've got no responsibilities. Your overhead is low. Before your own overhead starts to increase and you have, a, you know, an expensive house and kids and so on, now is the time to go for the jugular. Um, and so... I congratulate you, and I really, really anticipate that in the next 10 years, you're going to blow it out of the water. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, Buck. Uh, thanks for uh, being on the show, and we'll see you next time on the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.